You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. The Trek Files, Season 11, Episode 17, Letter to Wilton Dillon, July 2nd, 1975. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans. Oh, I'm excited. Listen, did you hear our episode last week? I mean, have you heard all 11 seasons? (laughs) But especially... This week, did you hear last week's uh, episode? We dived into the intersection between Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry and the Smithsonian and what that symbolizes for Star Trek and what it symbolizes for, you know, pop culture, our our American zeitgeist, and I guess our global zeitgeist. Listen, I had such a good time with Margaret Heidkamp last week that I wanted to have her back. We've got another document, though, from Gene's files, so you know the routine. Take a look at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. There's our documents for the week. Some more letters in the 70s from Gene back and forth with uh, Smithsonian folks. Here's an audio sample, and then I'll be right back with Margaret again. Take a listen. Dear Wilton, It was good to get your note and learn all is well with you and yours. The press release does sound like you're in for a heavy schedule from now through 1976. Have finally completed first draft of the Star Trek motion picture script. I have no way of knowing where we'll go from here, except that it does seem likely that I'll be producing a Star Trek motion picture of some kind this year. Wish I could have been in Honolulu with you. Best regards to Harris, and tell him that Majel and I warmly remember the pleasant day we all spent together. All right, Trekophiles spelled with an F. Some more of these, uh, you know, very personal, but at the same time, um, insightful looks at both the Smithsonian and Star Trek at this point. It's 19, uh, 1975, three years. A lot has happened in the world, much less the world of Star Trek, since the uh, letter we looked at from 72 a week ago with Fred Durant. Another noted uh, person who moved and shook things in the Smithsonian, uh, including the Air and Space Museum. Um so many fun things to talk about here and also big picture look at at, uh, at this intersection of Star Trek and what's going on in the Smithsonian. And that is why, once again, I'm glad to have back the curator and the chair of the Space History Department at the National Air and Space Museum. Yes, the Smithsonian. Margaret Weidekamp, back with us again. Thank you, Margaret, for joining us again. Hi, Larry. Thank you. And again, a lot of you know Margaret as the a very public face of the amazing restoration for the newest generation of display and interpretation for the big original 10-footer, 11-footer, however you come down on that. The original big filming model from the 60s, Star Trek, that's just just an awesome saga in itself. Uh, and this is the 50th anniversary year of the donation from Paramount of the model. But so this is a great, just a little fun, friendly, they've obviously struck up a conversation, Margaret, we were talking about, you know, these outsized personalities of people when they get together personally. We were talking about this last week with Fred Durant, but what comes to mind when you look at Gene and, and Wilton Dillon's um, exchange here and the press release he encloses? 
Well, I sympathize with the moment that they're in, right? So it is July of 1975 as they're writing. The National Air and Space Museum is going to open that building on the National Mall on July 1 of 1976. They know that that date of the bicentennial cannot be pushed. That is going to be (laughs) a hard deadline and they're going to have to meet it. Um, And the whole uh, Smithsonian is really a part of that bicentennial moment. And so... I see Wilton Dillon really putting the Smithsonian's stamp on this and looking to say, we're going to have scholarly symposia as a big part of this. And I think that that is one of the things that really rings true to me as someone who's at the Smithsonian now is the ways that we're looking at these big cultural moments. I see him, you know, corresponding with someone Mm -hmm. like Gene Roddenberry, who's very much, um, you know, in the thick of creating right in that same moment and then wanting to say, you know, okay, how do we bring in scholars? How do we get the people to reflect on this, not just to only to gather and to celebrate and to see the artifacts and to, you know, come to Washington, D.C. and around the nation celebrate the bicentennial, but how do we put that scholarly stamp on it that says Smithsonian? Right. Well, I I will say that I was old enough. I was a kid, teenager, I remember for people that weren't there, this was the bicentennial was it, it, it was a big it was the two anniversary of the signing of the declaration. We say that all the time. The bicentennial of what? The bicentennial yes. was and it was such a huge thing. I remember as a nerdy kid, uh collected stamps and they were, you know, like the stamp issues. There were four or five a year that were commemoratives starting in seventy one. I mean, there was like a five year buildup. And I have to say, as somebody who who lived in the world and was a kid going to school, everything was bicentennial, this bicentennial, you know, and it got to be, and this was, this was the year before Star Wars emerged, right? And, and kind of showed us what licensing and marketing could really look like. But I want to say before Star Wars as a pub, as a private concern, the bicentennial and all the, like there was bicentennial toilet paper and bicentennial, I mean, we were, remember we were awash and, and it was, I remember uh, just even in high school, the class of 76, it's like of their ordering their announcements for graduation, something very, you know, small town, humble. like all the options were red, white and blue themed except one. And that's the one they took, because by then everyone was a little sick of the bicentennial buildup, but not to say that when it finally arrived, it was a glorious time and moment. So I, you know, so yes, there professionally people are building up to it. The country is building up to it. I don't know what sense you know, qualifies as the same. It's it's interesting to hear you say that. But something you said last visit you were with us was that the Smithsonian actually began as a sponsor of Prod. Wasn't about things in a museum. It was about that. So and that's what Wilton works in. I love how he encloses the press release of what they've already got planned a year out. Yes, very <laughs> much so. Um because you know the increase in diffusion of knowledge is the um catchphrase for what we do with the Smithsonian and that really started as a research institution and then became this museum complex that everyone knows, but we're really still a research institution. The historians are doing research, the scientists are doing research, people are doing research on art. We have um, our archives, um, things, you know, and so we save things like this correspondence between Smithsonian folks and people like Gene Roddenberry, because we know that researchers are going to want to come in and see that and that they're going to get something new out of that. And then we really are always trying to bring people together. You know, I will say, you know, when I started work on the restoration of the mm-hmm. 11-foot Starship model, uh, one of the first things I did was started to 
form this kind of special advisory committee of, you know, what I can do best as a researcher is put the museum in touch with the absolute experts across the country and try to, you know, physically in the end, we brought people in to sit around a table Mm -hmm. and talk paint and decals and, you know, (laughs) windows and lighting and all the, you know, from stem to stern, what did we need to know? Um, in order to do this right, um, and then did that whole effort of trying to stay in touch with the fan community because we're fans also. And I think you see that from someone like Wilton Dillon, from uh, someone like Fred Durant in this correspondence, this way that they are um, very much connected to. But, you know, fans of what Gene Roddenberry's doing are mm-hmm. friends and admirers. Uh, who want to make that connection, and they, fortunately for us, we're making it a letter that we get to keep and see. Well, and then, of course, the little sidebar cool thing here is this is from 75, 1975, and and they have become such personal acquaintances that Gene feels like he can trust (laughs) a professionalist at Smithsonian to keep his mouth shut. Yes. And not spoil the fact that he's working on the draft script of, you know, this um, this is Gene's... Uh, I think we're still in the God thing stage here before it became the British script that then didn't happen, that then turned into the TV series that then came back to the motion picture. So, which, you know, the motion picture was premiered, right? Yes. At, at it was uh, premiered. Space. Yes. Um, yes uh, it was one of the places they had it at the Uptown and then they um, had their party at the National Air and Space Museum as it, one of the kind of fresh new yeah. event spaces in D.C. Which was all of, I guess, three and a half years old or so at the time, yes. as far as being open. Right, 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 right. With the Enterprise on display. Well, um, speaking of the big Enterprise on display, it's been around the museum. I was just I was just laughing. I didn't see it until I didn't get to see it on the trip that I was in D.C. in 76. I, I think it was being moved. Okay. And I was so disappointed. I couldn't believe it that my my older brother, who was in D.C. for something else, sent me slides of it, which was the first time I had my own, you know, photography. But I finally did get to see it about 10 years later. But the fact that it it opened when it was first on display at the Arts and Industries building, because uh, because Air and Space Museum didn't exist as an entity, as as a building, as a physical place. And as we're doing the renovations of that building right now, I could see kind of the genius of what they did, which was that they built this life in the universe, question mark, exhibit about kind of what would life in the universe look like. And this is a great example of what it could look like to be a real spacefaring Mm -hmm. species, you know, going from place to place as a part of Starfleet. And they built that whole exhibit and had it at the Arts and Industries building, and then they packed it all up. And so that when the new building was being built, they had pre-existing exhibits. There are more than 20 exhibit spaces in that building, as we are keenly aware right now. We've got eight <laughs> brand new ones open. We're working on the other 12. And um, so anything that you could have in the can and be ready to move over to a kind of just unpack and put out um, was going to make that big push that they're looking forward to here. So this is July of 75. They've got one more year. I'm sure that they, when he was writing this, he was keenly aware that they had just passed the, we're now one year out for what needs to be done with that building. Um, and having that arts and industries exhibit meant that they then could move that almost whole into the new Air and Space Museum. And that was part of populating that floor plan. Right. Just the logistics of, of administering and, and having something for, oh, it's not just a building, folks. There's something inside yes. inside the building, too. 
Well, Wilton Dillon, uh, I was pl- I did a little digging into him. I'd see another name that I'd seen floating by over the years, and sometimes in Jane's correspondence. Turns out he's an Okie. His first job was he was a reporter in Holdenville. I mean, for everybody listening, but wound up with this incredible career in anthropology, ethnology. Um, he wound up as the senior scholar emeritus after he retired with the Smithsonian. But for Oh, from 69 to 85, he was on his letterhead here, director of symposium seminars. Then he was director of interdisciplinary studies. So a lot of that scholarship and research circuit around the physical side of the artifacts of the Smithsonian, then scholar in residence. So what, I mean, how does, how do we, so for example, when the, um, everything about the restoration of the, of the Big E uh-huh. most recently, and I know there was a Smithsonian produced special, which was yes. awesome. Uh, but was did you have some symposia and seminars around that event? We had had them before. So I had brought scholars in to talk about the um, impact of Star Trek. And we had had that in one of our exhibit spaces in the National Mall building. And then with the reopening of the Boeing Milestones of Flight Hall, which is where the Big E resides um, <laughs> now, we did that in 2016 for the 40th anniversary of that National Mall uh-huh. thing, so July 1. Um, and then we had the good fortune that that lined up beautifully that September, of course, of 2016 was the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. So we were able to both unveil the restoration and the conservation of the 11-foot model in July, and then we did do two to three days of programming um, around the enterprise for that 50th anniversary. And we found out later there were folks who came into town and essentially treated it as a con, right? They, you know, stayed in a hotel and came over to the museum every day and went to all our panels and participated in the masquerade. Uh, and, you know, so we were really just having a lot of fun with that. But it is a real Smithsonian homework to bring scholars to bring mm-hmm. people together um, and to try to throw that kind of public programming that allows people to connect with that increase in diffusion of knowledge that we do. Did that week, now you've got me curious, did that weekend of seminars turn con, um, ex, like exceed your, like were you running out of chairs? I mean, was it, did it kind of blow up in a good way? It did. It really was wonderful. Um, it just kind of drew on the wonderful energy that you get when you get Star Trek fans together, uh, mm-hmm. where they're cooperative and excited and enthusiastic and costumed. And um, so that <laughs> just is has been a wonderful uh, thing to bring into the museum and to have, you know, our Trek yeah. fans and all of our other fans kind of next to each other. And there's just an awful lot of overlap between the folks who are you know passionate star trek fans and those who are passionate fans of aviation or spaceflight right and 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 the fact that we're interpreting that way and i just have to say there was a lot to document with the restoration because i you know the same approach you would take to x-raying say a sarcophagus from an egyptian you know mummy was applied to the enterprise model and we learned so much i mean we think about the smithsonian and inspiring the engineers but just the just the just the the model nerds that want to know how the original, you know, the historian, it, it believe it's love. If something has been around long enough, it becomes legitimate history. It gets, yes. to, you know what I mean. So just the the modeling model building nerds, it's now historical and it's it has a brass plaque under it. But to X-ray and get into the layers of paint and the, you talk about the spinoff research. Well, here's spinoff. 
the the paint chips of the different 60s yeah, you know paint jobs much less the restoration since i it was just an amazing thing and i and i love that it was all documented it was, and I really, in awe of our conservators who are, you know, scientists with years it- and years of training, uh, who are bringing all of those same techniques to the pop culture artifacts the same way that they do to spacecraft or uh, spacesuits. Mm-hmm. To you know, they we literally, when we had the Enterprise model in the conservation lab, the Engen Conservation Lab, out at the Udvarhazy Center, two tables away was the cowling from the Spirit of St. Louis, Charles Lindbergh's 1927 solo flight across the Atlantic. Um, and we're using the same kinds of scientific techniques on both to make sure that we really bring them up to what the American people will want. Right. And when's what's our timeline now on the, on the reopening? Uh, so we are aiming for the 250th birthday of the United States. Uh, we are aiming for that July weekend in uh, 2026, and we will be doing a big splash reopening at the uh, National Air and Space Museum's building on the National Mall as a part of the nation's marking of the 250th birthday. That's, well, there you go. We've, <laughs> we've what, a, what, again, take, what a great lineup there, the way the schedule's playing out. Well, listen, Margaret, this is this is such a pleasure, I, and but I, yet I feel unfulfilled. I know if we go back and dig in our files, and maybe even on your side, we can we can have some more fun with again the 50th anniversary of the donation of the and not just the big enterprise, but the uh, the Klingon battle cruiser. Yep, and some other pieces. I think some scripts. Anyway, I've been somewhere down the road in this 50th anniversary year of the donation. I'd love to maybe circle back with you. And we can dive, really dive into the model and uh, the history fun. then and in this too. But thank you so much now, Margaret. So good luck. Good luck with the reopening and um, good luck with uh, harnessing all that goodwill when people come up and see the Enterprise again. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. And all our documents and your chance to comment are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. For more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes like this, visit Dr. Trek in Portal 47. That's me at LarryNimbachek.com. Hey, that's where you can also link in and get all of our new Trek Files swag and shirts at our Tee Public shop. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.